0: It's great to be here, great to see so many people here. It's fantastic. I don't know about you, but I'm a bit of a Christmas tragic. Um, I don't like Christmas starting before December. I'm, a bit, I'm not really keen on seeing the Christmas mince pies in the, in the shops by about September, or the jingle girls, or the uh, stuff on the front. The, Overhead music before December, but what well, come December, I'm going to I go into Christmas mode. Okay. And uh, last night I went Catch to the Messiah a presentation. Of Messiah yeah. East uh, Melbourne, St Peters East Melbourne, every year puts it on on the Sunday night before the first Sunday in Advent, and it's done by wow. their local their their church choir, and they have a chamber orchestra, and they have their conductor, and they have four ten- uh, four solos that came in, and so the church was reasonably full, probably a couple of hundred, three hundred people there, and it was the most inspiring night, so I'm a little bit tired, so I came home and in and worked on my sermon, um, but uh, it was just amazing, and come the hallelujah chorus, everyone stood up, and some old prophet said to me afterwards, oh, it's only because the king stood up at the time, and not really, wasn't really to give glory to God, it's so hard who cares, who cares why they do it, and uh, I've had the pleasure of being in different countries around Christmas time and experiencing all the traditions that they have. And what better time than the first Sunday Advent to talk about the incarnation. And one thing that we do see around the place from now on out is the nativity scene. And I, I went back and did some research on the nativity scene because I have a friend who works in local government and their nativity scene for this local council I won't name it, it's a big one um, is sitting in the boxes in storage because they had a big argument about whether a nativity scene should be in front of government offices a new council member has just been elected who is a strong Catholic and she wanted to know where the nativity scene was and uh, my friend was visited by another manager and this manager said to her why <laughs> do you want a nativity scene at Christmas? This counsellor is trying to put Christ back into Christmas. And my friend said, is not that where it's supposed to be? Oh, no, it's just a secular, secular uh, holiday now. So I think it's amazing that the, the nativity scene comes from the time of St Francis of Assisi. Mm. He is credited with the first person to use the nativity scene. And he, of course, lived in Italy and St Francis was well-known as someone who loved people and wanted to connect the gospel to people. And he was preaching uh, near Christmas in this little town called, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Baratheol or something like that. And instead of preaching in the church where he knew would be too busy and you know, too many people coming for mass, he decided to preach in this little cave. And so he found this little cave in the rocks nearby and he got some people to act out the scene of the nativity. And... Uh, of course tradition grew up around it where someone claimed that the Christ child actually manifested in the manger that night we won't go into that but (laughs) from that time onwards Christians have um, looked to the nativity scene the nativity scene is something I collect I have given away a few different ones that I've come across And so I think it's a fascinating uh, kind of look around the world when you look at some nativity scenes so I collected a few pictures of nativity scenes from around the world and here's one from Africa. Uh, it's made of straw. And I think this is really cute. Uh, it would be pretty delicate though. My grandchild would not be allowed here that way. Uh, the next one is one, um, well, I'm not too sure it comes from, it looks, looks kind of Latvian to me. Anyone's from Latvia or in that Baltic area? I was there a couple of years ago. This looks a bit like what you would find there. I um, love the little prom. It Looks kind of alien, doesn't it? This one I think uh, looks kind of inscrutable. I think it's from the East, kind of maybe Japan, uh, Mongolia, China, that kind of area. I love the um, the kind of look around that. And then this is the Amish. I love this. Very plain. No faces. I have the image in the Amish. This is an Amish latincy. And then this is probably our most traditional one that we're familiar with and countless, countless pieces of art that show us this scene. And what strikes me, doesn't matter what nativity scene you look at, the focus of the nativity scene is the baby. Everyone, you always put your nativity scene so everyone is looking to the baby. And the baby is the focus, particularly in this one where the light shines down and it's on the baby. And so, for us, when we look at a nativity scene, the focus is on the baby because the important thing that the nativity scene brings to us is that a baby was born. This baby, who grows to be a man and who becomes the most famous man in the entire history of the world so Today, when we talk about the Incarnation, I want, to, I want to ask the question, who is this baby? Who is this baby? This is the baby Jesus. But what do we know about this baby? And why do we celebrate? And what is it about this baby that makes this baby so special that we have all these little nativity scenes and we have Jesus in the manger? And people even go so far as to have those um, live nativity scenes with the baby in the manger. Ultimately, what we have to say about this baby is in answer to the question that Jesus asked his disciples Uh, a long time after this, about 30 years later, we're told, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he said? who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. It's the answer to the question of who do you say that I am? That the incarnation, the doctrine, the the belief system of Christians around the birth of this baby and who do we say this baby is that makes us this time such a special time, it's the question that the church, the early church was forced to answer and really came only to a conclusion after 500 years of grappling with this and arguing about it and after 500 years of Christianity could come to some kind of feeling that this was a separate thing. People defended their understanding of who this baby was, in all kinds of ways. You read church fathers' writings and so much of them are around the question of Jesus Christ and who is he? And all through the ages people have asked this question who is this baby in the manger? And I just want to take a few moments today just to give you some suggested answers on, and I am drawing on Christian doctrine, Christian belief that has been formed down through the centuries, it's been 2,000 years, as the church has grappled, the church has come to a consensus around who this Jesus is. And they base this on the belief that the scripture is authoritative. And therefore, what the scriptures say and is important for us as we form a belief around who this baby is. Um, the scripture makes some claims about this baby. Um, we'll go to the next one. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what we're talking about today is this Word becoming flesh. In 1 Timothy 3.16, says, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared inner body and was vindicated by the Spirit. What these scriptures declare is the most important doctrine in the Christian faith. This is the one. This is the most important thing that we as Christians declare, and that is the incarnation. And the incarnation is a. Look, I'd love to, I'd love, I'm waiting for the day when Steve Sidles up to me and says, Come and preach. We've got a really easy one. How many angels dance on the head of a pin? Where was Jesus born? Happy with that one. I could spend the whole day talking about that. But this is not an easy thing that we're going to grapple with today. So I have not. I won't have all the answers. But we're going to have a look at this. The incarnation. What is this? This is the name given to the doctrine. We've just got that one. Sorry. Doctrine that at a given point in time, God took upon himself human flesh and with it human nature. This is the doctrine that says that Jesus, the baby in the manger, was fully human and fully divine. That this baby was the Son of God as well as being a human being. That this child, this baby, was one person two natures, both divine, both fully divine and fully human. Now, this doctrine is what sets Christianity apart from Judaism and Islam. It is a unique beliefs doctrine. It is this belief that this child that is born, this baby who grows to be a man is not just a prophet, he's not just a great teacher, but Jesus is the Son of God. And every time we look at the Timothy scene and every time we sing certain parables, we are reaffirming this belief. The word incarnation is not found anywhere in the Bible. Look, theologians love that. The word trinity is not found anywhere in the Bible. Neither is the word incarnation. It comes from the Latin, and it simply means enfleshment. Becoming flesh. Something being enfleshed. So who is this baby in the manger? Christians declare that this baby is the divine son of God. They declare that this baby in the manger is the human son of Mary. And they declare that this baby in the manger is one person with two natures, fully divine and fully human. Now I told you it wasn't an easy concept to brush. So if the head is spinning, join the club. It's not an easy one. Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther wrote, the mystery of the humanity of Christ that he sunk himself into our flesh is beyond all human understanding. If Martin Luther can declare it's beyond all human understanding, we can feel uh, okay if we just feel a little bit uh, confused at times about this. But the incarnation the word incarnation and what we celebrate today with the lighting of this candle and what we celebrate through our Christmas carols and all the great stuff that happens is all about the birth of this baby. When we see the baby in the manger, what do we ask ourselves? What do we recognise as Christians? What do we proclaim when we put out our nativity scene? When we celebrate this book? So I want to answer the question, who is the baby in the manger? And I'm unapologetically answering it from uh, 2,000 years of Christianity, grappling with this, working it through, understanding this. And so I'm not expressing my own opinion, although I agree fully with what I say. But I'm going to share with you the tradition that we hold to. First of all, that this little baby, maybe we can go back, little baby is fully divine. Now the artists of the time tended to indicate that by creating this glow kind of, you know, I call it the, the bulb effect, um, where they would around the child had this kind of halo of light. That was an artistic way of expressing this idea that this baby is fully the Son of God. This is not to say that Jesus was God-like. This is to say that Jesus was absolutely equal with the Father and with the Spirit. That this baby is the third person of the Trinity, taking on flesh. This baby is the one through whom and for whom all the universe was created. Colossians 1.16 says For in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him. This little baby this little baby is the one in whom the universe finds its beginning and its purpose. This baby is the son of God. This is affirmed throughout this baby's life. I'm not too sure how much Mary understood. I think she understood a bit of it. But as Jesus grew this affirmation that that here is a child who is the son of God comes. The angels affirm this at his birth. Glory to God in the highest. There is a child that is born the son of God. We sing this in our Christmas carols. Those who do carols Listen to the words as you sing. You're affirming that. When Jesus was baptised, what did God say? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Even Satan, when Jesus was tempted, called him the son of God. And even when Jesus was casting out demons, they were screaming out, keep away from us, you're the son of God. There's also affirmation in some of the things that the baby grows up to declare about himself. He says uh, he claims to be able to forgive sins. He claims to be able to judge the world. He claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. All the things that the Jewish people at the time understood God did. He placed his own words at the same level as the Old Testament. He implied that he had power over life and death. He accepted when his disciples attributed to him be the son of God. He didn't reject or contradict when this was the claim made against him the accusation at his trial. He claimed that the work that he did was the same as what his father was doing. He displayed an intimacy in his relationship with the father. He was the first, Jeremiah, the uh, Jewish writer, was said that claimed that he was the first to call God, other, that tender daddy form of address, And he did actions that only God could, he performed miracles. He actually was able to know people's thoughts, all things that God could do. And we have to look at this baby and say this baby was God even before he was born. John 1, 1-3 said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. <laughs> so even before he was a baby, he was God. And this little baby was worthy of glory before he became a baby. John once again said, Jesus said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Philippians tells us that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, did not claim equality with God, but in the incarnation was willing to set aside those things in order to take on human flesh. I don't know how we grasp what that means. It's only happened once in history and it will never happen again. But what did it mean for the second son, for the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to become a take on human flesh, flesh and not just be born, but to be born as a baby? Why didn't God make him a full grown man? Because as a baby, he's totally and utterly dependent on other people. So true. Anyone had a baby recently? Had a one year old here. I've just gone through eighteen months with my granddaughter. Hey, cool. I believe, they smell, I start throwing food around, you know, some, you know, a, a baby is totally vulnerable. Human flesh as a baby is cute, but it's also messy. It Can't do anything for itself. And here is the second person of the Trinity in fleshing. Was a grown man with control of everything, but as living. and Mary didn't drop him by his head. It's totally and utterly dependent on humanity. And I don't think human flesh, as a baby is particularly glorious or godlike. But what does it mean for us that this baby has this halo this is light, this baby is divine? Well, it means that, first of all, we can know what God is like. Because God came in human flesh and walked amongst us, we know what God is like. The scripture tells us that God is like Jesus. In Hebrews 1 three, it says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. It's hard for us to con- have a concept of a God who's a spirit up there somewhere. But it's easier for us to look at Jesus and say, God is like this. This is what God is like. Because Jesus, this baby, was born the Son of God, it means that we are now able to partake in redemption. If this baby was not born, redemption would not be possible for us. Only someone who is an infinite God can bear the full penalty for our sins human being can't do it. We need God. in order to come in our place. For the first time since the fall, humanity is reunited with God in the person of Jesus Christ. And through the cross, we can be reunited with God. Um, let me read to you a little story that someone wrote. Long ago, there ruled in Persia a wise and good king. We love this. He wanted to know how they lived. He wanted to know about their hardships. Often he dressed in the clothes of a working man or a beggar and went to the homes of the poor. No one whom he visited thought that he was their ruler. One time he visited a very poor man who lived in a cellar. He ate the coarse food the poor man ate. He spoke cheerful, kind words to him, then he left. Later he visited the poor man again and disclosed his identity by saying, I am king." The king thought the man would surely ask the same gift of favour, or some gift of favour, but he didn't. Instead he said, You left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark, dreary place. You ate the coarse food I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. To others you have given your rich gifts. To me you have given yourself. God is willing to make... Almost any accommodation to have fellowship with us, even to the point of becoming us we'll Scroll down then and have a look at, at Jesus' divinity. This is probably the way that we see depicted mostly. And let me say the church fought to be able to declare that Jesus was the Son of God. Of course, it's easy to say Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was the prophet, but it's another thing again to say that Jesus is the Son of God. And for 300 years, heresies arose in the church, and the church thought, and through the church councils, particularly the Council of Nicaea, came to the point where they said that you have to, in order to be a Christian, Christians believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And they put it in the Creed, the Nicaea Creed, to make sure that as you affirm the Nicene Creed, you were affirming that Jesus was divine. But if you think about the baby in the manger, we're not just saying that he's the son of God, we're also saying that this baby is fully human. And if we go down, we see a picture of what um, has been reconstructed recently from the last 10, 15 years. Um, what a Semitic man in the first century probably looked A little bit different than what we often think of Jesus, but most scholars and archaeologists say this is probably a reasonable depiction of what Jesus would look like. Oh, I like this one better. This is probably closer. Peter, when he spoke at at the day of Pentecost, said, "People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man." Credited to God by you by miracles, wonders, and signs. What do we say when we say that Jesus was a man? We say that this baby lived a fully human life. That he didn't float, you know, and just kind of do all kinds of oomie things that we think of, Casper the Ghost, and all those kind of things. We might think of angels. This baby was fully human. He up and went through exactly the same things that we as humans do. He had a physical nature. He looked like this Semitic man. He had the same physical limitations as all humans do. He suffered physically. He physically died. He had the same emotions as humans. He loved people. He could be sorrowful. He could be troubled. He could be joyful. He could be angry be astonished, and he did weep at times. He had intellect the same as a human. He knew thoughts, he knew characters, he knew the past, he knew the future, but at the same time, there were limits on this man's knowledge. In some cases, he asked questions, because he genuinely didn't know. In some cases in scripture, Jesus says, I don't know. he had a spiritual life this boy jesus grew up this baby grew up and he went and he went to the temple and he learned and he prayed and he struggled and we know that the same human being was a subject to temptation as we were and we are this baby is human if you touched him you would feel human flesh. If you pinched him, he would go out. And this was another area in which the church had to um, wrestle with because along came certain doctrines and certain heresies that said, no, no, he's just a ghost. He just looked like a human, but he didn't have a real human body. And so the church struggled with that and came up with creeds declarations to say, no, this was a human person. John, writing near the end of his life, writes this about Jesus. That which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. John is writing against the heresy at the time which says that Jesus was not human. God could never become a human being. And he says, no, no, I walked with him, I talked with him, I touched him, he slept with us, he woke, he ate fish with us, he did all the things that a human being would do. So The question is, what does that mean for us? What difference does it make that this baby that we see in the nativity scene is Son of God, but also a human being? It means that We can have a mediator between God and us. God cannot be known unless he makes himself known, and he makes himself known in this person, Jesus, and Jesus can represent humanity before God, because Jesus is human. This baby can be the substitute sacrifice. In those days, when you killed a goat or a lamb in the Old Testament times, really, this was substitute for the human who deserved to die. So in order to bring about a final solution to the issue of sin and forgiveness, there needed to be a human being who could die representing all of humanity. And that is this man, Jesus. He's able to represent us because he himself is a human being. And this baby, praise God, Can intercede on our behalf. You know, there's nothing worse than having someone come up to you and say, I know exactly how you feel. And you go, no, you don't. You know, you've gone through this trauma or whatever, and someone comes up and knows exactly how you feel and you say, Do you really? Have you actually been through what I've been through? You go, no. You say, That's very nice to your sympathy, but really, you're not being able to empathise on my behalf. But Jesus Christ, who experienced everything that human beings have experienced, including temptation, even though he didn't sin, is able to intercede on our behalf. He's able to stand before the Father and say, Father, forgive Steve, because I know what it's like to be in that place. I can tell you what it's like, and I want you to forgive him. And he can do that because he knows what it's like to live the kind of life that we live struggle with the things that we struggle with. Because he is also, this baby is going to grow up to be the example and the pattern of what it means to live a truly human life. What does it mean to be a real man? Look to Jesus. What does it mean to be a person who walks in communion with God? Look to Jesus. What does it mean? How you live in relationship with others. We look to Jesus because He is our example. I hate the name bands. What would Jesus do? <laughs> but that's what the that's what it's talking about. How do we know how to respond? Is because we know what Jesus would do and what Jesus did do more likely. And the interesting thing is, because Jesus rose from the dead, my good believe that we too, as human beings, are going to rise from dead on that last day. So you've we'll to look after your body. <laughs> I will go into that one. It's another one. Okay. C.S. Lewis wrote, "Lying at your feet with a dog. Imagine for the moment that your dog, and every dog, is in deep distress. Some of us love dogs very much. It would help all the dogs in the world to become like men. Would you be willing to become a dog? Would you put down your human nature, leave your loved ones, your job, your hobbies, your art, your literature, your music, and choose instead of the intimate communion with your beloved, the poor substitute of looking into the beloved's face and wagging your tail, unable to speak or to smile? Christ, by becoming man, limited the thing which to him was the most precious in the world, his unhampered, unhindered communion with the Father. And why did he do that? John 3 16 says, because he loved us so much. He was willing to take on the limitations and all the ugliness and horribleness of being a human being. So, who is this baby in the manger? Fully divine, fully human. And somehow, as Christians, we have to work out how the fully divine and the fully human meet in the one person. And that's tough. (laughs) Someone's called this the ultimate paradox. So, Steve, this is what it says about the incarnation. This is a quote from Bailey The incarnation presents us indeed with the supreme paradox. So if I don't come up with the right answer, you know that I'm just working on a supreme paradox because we're talking about one person in whom two natures combine, but they don't mingle. And so God who is knowing all things in a human being is limited in knowledge. The God who can be everywhere present as a human being is limited in spatial restrictions. And the God who is all-powerful as a human being is unable to do all things. And one of the major tasks of human Christian thought down through the ages has been to think about how do we grasp this whole idea of the baby who is fully divine and the baby is fully human, but this is the one baby, the one person. Well, we, we, can, we can affirm some things, but we can't explain it. That's what Christians do when they. The solution. They decide what we don't believe in order to give us some latitude of what we do believe. Does that make sense? So we don't come up with definitive statements, we come up with what we won't accept. And that's pretty much what the church has done. It's said, no, you can't talk about Jesus as sometimes acting as the son of God and other times acting as a human being. There is never a case in scripture where one action is given to him and designated as he was of God and the other one because he was a human being. We recognise that when people talk about Jesus in Scripture, they talk about both his divinity and humanity, and sometimes they use titles that muddle them up, so things about the Son of Man, they attribute to divinity and vice versa, and you can't talk about Jesus doing something in terms of because he was the Son of Man or because he was the Son of God. At all times, Jesus is working these two natures work together in the one person. So down through the ages, a number of theories arose to explain this. And usually what happens is the church doesn't worry about it until her- heresy arises. As soon as you get a heresy, then the church has to address it. Until then everyone's happy to go on. So the church had addressed the issues of Jesus' divinity and kind of by the time of Nicaea 325 we have some kind of Uh, Sorry, a bit later than that. We have some agreement on that. Churches agree that Jesus is fully human. They've got rid of all the heresies around that. Now they have to work out how do these two fit together. Along came a man called Nestorius, and he argued that Jesus was in fact two persons, that Jesus was fully divine, and that was one person, and then he was fully human, and that was another. never quite explained how it happened, but these were divided persons. So Jesus would pop up as human being and then he'd pop up as Son of God. And so the church created something. They created a concept to explain how Jesus could be both divine, fully divine, fully human. I love that. There's no way of explaining so they describe, they come up with a new term. And someone came up with this idea of a hypostatic union. A union so intense that two natures are one person. So they created a whole doctrine to cover this idea that Jesus was his person. No one can explain this union, but we use that term. And then came another man called Eutychus, and he argued the other way. He said, look, let's just mix them all together. And so the human and the divine are not separate in Jesus. He's kind of this third hybrid. You, know how you grow a rose and it's a hybrid rose and it's to to that. So let's just take Jesus the divine, Jesus the human, and mingle it together and come up with Jesus the whatever. The church says, no, nope, sorry, uh-uh, can't do that. Jesus is both divine and human, but he is just the one person. You can't have it absorbed, one absorbed into the other. So what did the church do? The church held another council and uh, having numbing all this stuff through. They came up with what's known as the Creed of Chalcedon. And if we go to that, here we go. Now I'm going to give you a few minutes. I'm not going to bore you to death. But (laughs) the Creed of Chalcedon is what the church came up with to explain the incarnation, to explain this baby in the manger. The church wrestled with it. Humanity and the divinity of Jesus, and how these two natures came together in this one person. So, take a couple of seconds out, read that, talk about it around the table, and see if you can see some declarations. We're not a creedal movement, the Church of the Christ is not into saying the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, but this gives us an indication of what Christians down through the centuries declare about this baby. Notice some things here. i not here about some things that they notice in this creed. Up in the language, they look like, hey? Eh? Good things to this but The declaration is really important to the church about 500 AD. Okay. And the Jesus. Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Right? Perfect God, perfect in man. Truly God and truly man. <laughs> A reasonable, rational soul body. Consubstantial or co with the Father according to Godhead and consubstantial with us according to manhood. In other words, made the same essence as God and made the same essence as human beings. Uh, this is coming against Arianism uh, Jehovah's Witness, which you might be familiar with, that's a common heresy today. Um, begotten from all ages, in, in all things like us, but without sin. Go down to the middle there, it says, um, one of the same Christ, Lord, son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusably, unchangeably, indivisibly, indivisibly, and inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but the rather the property of each nature being preserved. Not partial or divided into two persons, but one and the only, the same son. These were all things that came out of the heresies, and so the church said you can't divide Jesus and you can't confuse his natures. You have to declare that he is both fully God and fully man. Now, for us in the 21st century, knowing who this baby is, babies, knowing that he's fully divine, he's fully human, that somehow two natures exist in the same person without being mingled and without being divided. What does it mean for us? What what difference does it make when we come to Christmas? Well this baby is going to go on and change the world. Time is going to be measured by this baby's birth and death. Nations are going to be shaped because of this baby's teachings, and millions of people are going to be transformed because this baby has come to the world. But the most crucial thing about the incarnation is to ask the question why. Why does God choose to come in the flesh? The only answer is because of us. Because. The plan of redemption that began at the fall and then through the whole Old Testament finds its its culmination in the death, burial, and resurrection of the man Jesus, who is born as a baby, coming as the Son of God in the human flesh. The only way that we can be redeemed and restored back to the relationship that God had for us in the Garden of Eden is through the coming of this little hopeless baby in the manger. And all the disputes the Church has had and all the issues that come out of the Incarnation boil down to the fact that if we do away with this doctrine, we have no basis for our salvation. We have no basis to declare that we are now in right relationship with God. That baby in the manger is the Christ, Our entire Christian. The infleshment of God. Hmm. a little chubby baby, I don't think it would have been that chubby when he was under a few hours old, but I won't go into that. Uh, Poetic and artistic licensing for these pictures. Um, It's all about us. It's all about God sending His Son into the world just for me just for you. Hmm. The infleshment of God. Father, we thank you for the afflishment of the Son, Jesus, who willingly laid aside what it meant to be equal with you, able to uh, have the glory of the angels and what it meant to be the second person of the Trinity, and willingly took on human flesh for our benefit. For the express purpose of going to, put to the cross to die as the sinless sacrifice. As the God who could take away the sins of the world and as the human representative, so that our sin is done, once and for all. I pray that as we go through this Advent season, that each time we see the lady in the manger, we're we'll reminded of what that means to us and the beliefs and the things that we hold dear and the way we form our life, which comes from this. Seen of this baby blind in Jesus' name.